following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. So good to be with you, to talk with you on the patio sometimes, and to be able to catch up. Feels like family every Sunday to me, so I'm really grateful that you would be here. Around 1904, I want to tell you a story that occurred during that year. It was a parent that actually, are you ready for this, gave their son a trip around the world for graduating from high school at the age of 16. How do you like that? I mean, at age 16, he goes and sees the world. As he sees the world, it changes him. He's got a solid foundation as a Christian, came from a Christian family, and he grew very burdened for the people that he saw around the world who didn't know Christ. So on this trip, after a, you know, graduating from high school, he now has this massive burden writes home to his parents, says, I want to be a missionary, and I'm going to go to Yale University to get my degree. Well, his parents are incensed because he's from a very wealthy family, and they plan for him to actually be the one who takes over the business. Plus, they looked down at Yale University for some reason, and they didn't like that idea. But regardless, he wrote in his Bible two words as he began this journey, and the two words that he wrote in his Bible was, no reserves. Well, at the beginning of the semester at Yale, he realized that Yale University was a mistake. It still is today, friends, but it was a mistake back then. This is what he wrote. This place, quote, is empty, has humanistic philosophy, is morally corrupt, and is filled with sin-ruined lives. This is in 1905. So he determined to do something about it. Now, nothing has changed at Yale, but he had a mission. Interesting enough, that first semester, he started a prayer group of three different people that prayed with him. By the end of the year, he had 150 people with him in a Bible study. By the time he was a senior at Yale, he had 1,000 people in Bible studies all across the campus out of 1,300 students, 1,000 are involved in ministry. The, the effect on the college began to leak out into New Haven, where Yale is, and they started a mission. And the mission was the, uh, uh, let's see, Yale Hope Mission. And it served widows and orphans, the hungry, hungry even, even drunkards, with the sole purpose of caring for them so that they could share the gospel of Jesus Christ, so they would come to Jesus Christ. Well, he was so consumed by his desire to be a missionary that even at graduating, he's offered multiple business opportunities outside of his own family, turned them down because he still wants to be a full-time missionary, and now he's basically going to China. But not just China, he wants to reach the Muslims that are found in China. What a mission. And at this point in his life, in the back of his Bible, he adds two more words. He adds, no retreats, no retreats. He enrolls in Princeton University in the seminary program there, and after a few years, he graduated. He's on his way to China on a boat. On the way there, he stops off in Egypt to study Arabic, but there in Egypt, he contracts spinal meningitis, and he dies at age 25. Wow. Wow. When the news reached his home of his death, it was discovered that he had actually given his portion of the family fortune away, which rightly belonged to him, away to those in ministry. And almost despondently, they began to look through his Bible, and they found that there were two more words written with the four that had already been written there. Under no reserves and no retreats, he had written no regrets. None. William Borden, I don't know if you've ever heard of that company, but it lasted from the Borden Food Company from 1857 all the way to 2001, almost 150 years, and he was the heir apparent of that fortune, gave it up because he felt it was more important that he would proclaim the gospel to the lost world than enjoy the riches and the benefits of being a bigwig in our society and to have all the money he could ever want. Interesting enough, he gave up his rights in order to show that Christ was the right way. 
Interesting enough, the reason I share that with you is because that kind of flies in the face of our society, does it not? Our society is constantly clamoring for our rights. We often forget as Christians that when we came to Christ, in our heart of hearts, the Spirit of God enabled us to actually give up our rights. He really did. You couldn't become a Christian unless you gave up your rights. What does the Bible say? Take a look at those verses in your outline. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Luke 9, 24, forever wishes to save his life will what? Lose it. Forever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die how often? Daily. 2 Corinthians 5.15, he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for who? Themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. As you were becoming a Christian, you gave up your life, your way, your will, in order to embrace God's abundant life and eternal life. You surrendered all that you are to receive all that he is And you didn't do that in your own strength. You didn't earn your salvation. God created that heart that enabled you to respond. And when the Spirit drew you to Christ, you gave up your rights. You came to Christ. You So you wanted to become like Christ. And you want to have faith in Christ. And you want to follow Christ. All those things God created as you then surrender your rights to Him with a new heart that wants to. And as a believer, now, we're in a constant mode of denying self and depending on Christ. But it isn't easy. Can I hear an amen to that? It isn't easy because there's something in us that fights against that, you know, that sin residuum that still exists there. And also, we live in a society that's consumed with fighting for your rights. Uh, We live in the U.S., not a bad country, understand, but we have inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But add to those, now in our day, we're consumed with civil rights, and women's rights, and children's rights, and workers' rights, and prisoners' rights, and the right of every race. In fact, there has never been a society ever in the history of the world that is more consumed with rights. And yet, we applaud those who stand up for their rights. Yet often, they're motivated by self-preservation and self-interest, are they not? Same thing. And friends, that's exactly what our sinful residuum, that that old nature, the memory of that desires. You know what it desires? It thirsts after self-interest. Does it not? We're consumed with that. And then to complicate matters, the process of protecting our own self-interest, fallen sinful people will wreak havoc on anybody that tries to take their rights away from them. We're going to get them if they want to take our rights away from us. And so we're going to revenge, we're going to retribute, we're going to retaliate. They're going to pay for messing with our rights. Except if you're born again, if you know Christ, write it down. It's then that his interests outweigh your self-interests. His interests overrule your self-interests. Paul was a man who often had his rights trampled on, right? The great missionary. He, I mean, he just constantly was stepped on. And he writes about it almost in a sarcastic way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you see that in your outline there? 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, let me highlight certain verses there. Verse 4, do we not have a right to eat and drink, you know, like missionaries did, and, and, and to be supported or given food. Verse 5, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife like the others do? Verse 6, or, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working but to focus on ministry? Verse 12, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this what? Right. But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. He was willing to give up his personal rights so the gospel could be known, so the gospel could be proclaimed, so Christ could be shown. And that's not just for missionaries or pastors or elders. That's for every Christian. This is what he's calling us to. 
This very heart is now what Christ brings up in the Sermon on the Mount. This very heart of a willingness to give up your personal rights for the glory of God and for the gospel. Open your Bibles, if you're not there already, to Matthew 5. And ask yourself, are you willing to give up your rights in order to point to Christ and his gospel? And he's going to show you how that actually works out today. In fact, probably no paragraph, listen to me, in Christ's Sermon on the Mount is more misapplied and misinterpreted than this section. This is the one that creates weird Christians if they don't understand this text. So I don't want anybody leaving here weird I want you to understand what God meant by what God said. So I'm going to do my best to explain what it meant to them so you would understand then how we could apply it to our day as well, okay? So are you willing to understand it in terms of what Christ intended? I hope you are, because most see this paragraph as a charge to live as a doormat that Christians just lay down, were passive, Some even see it as an excuse for conscientious objection to military service. And none of those things is the intention of this text. This text does not teach doormat pacifism at all. At all. What is happening here? Let me explain it very quickly. Verse 38 to 42 is the religion of the scribes and Pharisees. The oral tradition, what those people who are listening to Jesus were, were understanding. What they understood, which was an error was that you personally should not only be able to fight for your rights, but when somebody takes them away, you can seek revenge on them. They were taught by the rabbis, you could get them back. And, and, and they would say, that's what God wants you to do. So that's what was going on in their society. And Christ is going to correct that. So this is the fifth time in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus has said this phrase, You've heard it said, but I say to you. It's the fifth time. It's six times in this passage. We're going to look at one more after Christmas. All right? It's really a good one. And we're going to look at those, and we've tried to look at them, and they form paragraphs. And so each week, we've been dealing with one of the paragraphs. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And then we explain that paragraph. Well, we're in this paragraph now, and now it's saying, you've heard it said that the oral tradition says an eye for an eye. An eye for an eye, meaning the the civic law that's out there that says if you're damaged by an eye, you can take an eye. Well, you can apply that personally. The oral tradition was saying you use that personally and seek revenge on people. But I say to you, Jesus says, I need you to understand that God's intention was that you would give up your personal rights. You would give up your personal rights. You would not seek revenge at all, ever. Are you with me? That's the general meaning. We want to explain it, though, so you don't go off into some weird response. So here's the question this morning that underlies the entire text. Are you ready this morning to be Christ-like and not cultural? Amen? Okay, because we're going to fly in the face of our culture right now. I mean, it's in your face, our culture, to be Christ-like is really going to be different. So how are you going to start? Well, you're going to read with me this passage, right? Verses 38 to 42, and you're going to read it out loud with some vigor and excitement. You're going to completely undo the bad reputation that third hour has, that you're kind of a little bit more passive. You're going to be a little more aggressive as we read this together. Here we go, everyone together. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Okay? So this passage teaches three things that follow the three points. One is a general principle we're going to look at first, the first principle, the first point. The second one is a clarification. He's going to clarify what he means by what he says, and we're going to clarify that. And thirdly, he wraps up with four application points, so four very practical points on how this is worked out in everyday life. Are you ready for that? It's incredible stuff. Number one in your outline, traditional public procedure. Traditional public procedure. What do you do and what's God expect in the public 
arena. Well, in the public arena, you're not giving up rights there. Verse 38, he says, you've heard it said, this is what the oral tradition said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now let's break this down. Christ is first affirming the lex talionis, the tit for tat, the quid pro quo. Um, You're going, what is that? That's all for the lawyers in our midst. Let the punishment match the crime. Write that down, would you? Let the punishment match the crime. Criminal law was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Criminal law. And it's taught in three passages in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. We're going to look at two of those, right? Now, understand this law is applied in government, in civil government, in society. This is a law for society. What's a law for? Society. It was to be applied that way. It was written that way. It's for society. And it says when somebody intentionally harms you. It's not an accident here. This is intentional. In Leviticus 24.20, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now listen, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Tooth for tooth, eye for eye. Exodus 21.24, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's an Old Testament law in order to curtail crime and to prevent excessive punishment in society for a wrongdoing and prevent personal vengeance and prevent angry retaliation. Why? One more time. The punishment must what? Fit the crime. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. Now, the most important aspect, if you don't hear anything about this first aspect, get this. The most important aspect of this Old Testament law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, each one of the passages in the Pentateuch that prescribe eye for an eye, tooth for tooth principle only has to do with civic justice system. Are you tracking with me? It has to do with governmental law, societal law. That's what it has to do. Yes, in the Old Testament times, sometimes the punishment was actually carried out by the victim, but the trial and the sentencing were always the responsibility of a duly appointed judge or jury of citizens, never the victim. They never set the judgment, right? That was civic law. So get this. Tooth for tooth, eye for eye, hand for hand is a just law because it made the punishment fit the crime. If you lost an eye, you lost an eye. You know, you you took an eye, you lost an eye. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth is a merciful law because it limited, and what did it limit? Are you ready? The innate propensity of you and me, the human heart, to seek retribution to get them back worse than they got me. Are you with me? So you couldn't do it. If they took an eye, you can only take an eye. You can't take more than that. Are you with me? It limited their judgment. Plus, tooth for tooth, eye for an eye, that law, hand for hand, was a beneficial law because it protected society by restraining wrongdoing. Listen, you're going to be less prone to bash a guy, you know, or gouge his eye if you know that if you do that, you're going to lose your eye. Correct? Don't you wish that was in play today? Okay. So... A self-centered overreaction to an offense or to a wrong done to us, that's the natural fleshly response to a sinful fallen nature. And listen, you learned this in elementary school, right? When somebody in kindergarten came up to you and just kicked you as hard as they could in the shin, what'd you want to do? Kick them back, correct? A little bit harder, multiple times even. What do I hear from adults? Even today, even Christians, I don't get mad, I get, ooh, ouch. That kind of thinking is not involved with Christ and is foreign to him and to his followers. It is. With some people, though, losing a tooth or an eye is really not that big a deal. There's a lot of guys in this room, whatever, I'll use a patch, I'll look mean, I'll look tough, it's good. To the proud, though, the vain, the beautiful babes in our midst, and, you know, again, like me, the hyper-handsome. Um, you're laughing? Uh, uh, in our flesh, I'm just being honest here. You cause me to lose a tooth or an eye, 
I might demand torture or death. You took my eye. I need my eye. You're going to pay, right? Is anybody with me on this? Sure. Admit it. Sometimes we want a pound of flesh for an ounce of offense. One more time. We want a pound of flesh for an ounce of offense. This is why God repeatedly reminds us in his word that vengeance is his. Retribution only belongs to God. Only to God. Not you. Never you. And let me use this word very carefully. Never! And you say, Chris, how can you do that? We should be very careful when we use always and never. Only except when the scripture uses it. Take a look at Romans chapter 12, verse 19. What's the very first word? Never. Never take your own revenge. And when he says never there, what's he mean in the Greek? Tell me, what's he mean? Never. Never take revenge. Beloved, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Yeah, well, what about, what about Christians? Sometimes Christians, you know, we've got we to do this right. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 30. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge who? His people. God will take care of it. Truth in time. God will take care of it. Just trust Him. This traditional public law that belongs in society, eye for an eye, we wish it was there, keeps you beautiful babes and handsome hunks in check. Because if it costs you an eye, it costs them an eye and no more. No more. That's all. No torture, sadly. No death. None. Now, that's society. The, 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 the scribes took societal law and applied it personally. They weren't supposed to do that. They manipulated the Bible to say that societal law belongs to you, so now you can seek revenge. But the Bible never teaches that anywhere. For you personally, for the individual Christ follower, it's different than civic law, governmental law, societal law. Okay, what's, what's the difference? Yes, God's command for the individual has always been Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your what? Enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Romans 12, verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's our law. And no individual has the right to say, Proverbs 24, 29, I shall do to him as he has done to me. There's no verse... Old Testament, New Testament, where God allows an individual to take the civic law that belongs to society into his own hands and apply it personally. None. There's no place in the Old Testament where God allows the individual to take revenge at all on another. It can't happen. I'm sorry. If you're into comic books, maybe you are, secretly, you haven't told anybody because you're embarrassed, Understand, I want to make this very clear for you comic book people. There is no allowance in the Old Testament or New Testament that gives room for an individual believing Batman. There's no secret vengeance out there. All right? That doesn't happen. No Christian punisher. This is exactly what the rabbinic tradition had done. The oral tradition. This is why Jesus says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye. He's saying, look, this is what the rabbis are teaching you, that you can do this individually. The scribes had so misapplied God's law that they made it possible for an individual believer to function as his own judge, jury, and executioner. It's like, you're now Judge Dredd. You can do it all. God's law was turned into an individual license to kill. The scribes had perverted civil justice and turned it into personal vengeance. They had perverted civil justice, governmental law, and they had turned it into a personal vendetta. So, instead of obeying the law, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which would limit the punishment fairly, now they conveniently use this governmental civil law that belonged in society personally and individually, which it was not intended for, as a self-righteous allowance for personal vengeance. That's what they did. So now, they're listening to Jesus, and he's teaching this, and this has got to be... I can't imagine that their mouths were dropping open listening to every word. Because he says... They're thinking, I can seek revenge. I can go after this. This is what the rabbis approve. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And he's saying, no, 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 no. They're thinking that if somebody wrongs them, they hurt me, they said something about me, they slandered me, they abused my rights. And Jesus is saying, no, I want you to give up your rights individually. I want you to point to Christ. I want you to point to God. I want you to point to Yahweh as the one who is right and who has the right only to seek vengeance. 
only God. Which leads us to point number two. Let's get clear, because some of you are going to go down the wrong road on this. So truthful personal principle. The truthful personal principle does give up rights. Now look what he says in verse 39. You've got to get this, fill in the blank, but look at verse 39. But I say to you, this is now the correct, do not what? Resist an evil person. He corrects their misinterpretation of the law, and he said and he forbids retaliation. He forbids personal retaliation. You are not personally to take revenge, period. Let me add, because we're so evil, we like to be coy and subtle, do we not? So, you know, maybe you're not going to pick up a two-by-four with a nail on the end and go bash somebody. But in your heart of hearts, you still want revenge. So what do you do? You slander. You think less of them, and you make others start to think less of them. You make others doubt them and imply things and hint things. You don't really talk about them in a derogatory way. You don't call others to pray for them, but you do so so that they think poorly of them. You say this, stuff like this. You know, you really need to pray for them because their character is so bad. You've put them down. We can be so evil. Would you agree with this? That it's our mouths and our hearts that we make them pay. We're seeking revenge. We don't do it physically, but we're doing it. Are you tracking with me? This is what he's talking about. Remember, Jesus is going after the heart. So it's not just the physical expression. It's what's going on inside of you. Now, let's not go to the extreme. Stay with me. Be careful, Christ is not teaching, as many have claimed, that no stand can be taken against evil and that you should simply allow evil to take its course. No, that's not what Christ teaches here. We see Christ and his apostles continually oppose evil and every spiritual means given to them to oppose evil. Take a look at these examples in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. When Peter compromised with the Judaizers, Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He stood publicly against evil. 1 Corinthians 5.13, when there's immorality in the midst of the body, the church, with church-loving discipline, God says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Again, we're reacting to evil. 1 Timothy 5.20, Paul says, those in the church who continue with defiant, intentional sin should be rebuked in the presence of all. You're reacting to evil. Amen? You are. And Romans 13.4 And even in civil government, in society, the police officers of our culture carry weapons and they uphold the law so that they can stop evil because they are ministers of God to you for good. Can I hear an amen? They are. This is what God designed. And for the sake of the God's righteousness and human justice, believers are obligated to not only uphold the law themselves but to also insist that others uphold the law. To report a crime is an act of compassion, it's an act of righteousness, it's an act of godly obedience, as well as an act of civil responsibility. To belittle or excuse or hide the wrongdoing of others is not an act of love. It is an act of wickedness because it undermines civil justice and divine righteousness. We are to restrain evil. We are. That is loving. That is kind. To not do so is to fail to protect the innocent and to encourage the spread of evil in our society. We stand for goodness. We oppose evil. But here in verse 39, when Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, the verb resist there is to set against, to oppose, and in the context it's obviously referring to harm done to us personally by someone who is evil. So when that happens, Jesus is saying, do not personally, are you ready, resent, to spite, to seek revenge, even the evil person. You, you're, you're, you're not to do that. Paul taught the same thing. Look at Romans 12, verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Never, verse 19, take your own revenge. Vengeful retaliation has no place in society, and it definitely has no place in the life of a Christian, ever. You and I are called to overcome someone's evil toward us by doing good to them, by loving our enemies, by serving them, being kind to them. Give up your rights. Take a look at Romans 12, 21. 
do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Look at, yes, what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 35. Love your enemies and do good and lend to them, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons. You'll prove that you're sons of the Most High. And catch this about Jesus. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Are you to be like Christ, yes or no? Then therefore, you will be kind to unjust and evil men. Kind. Giving up your rights points to Christ alone as being right. Give your life to Christ with no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. Now, the Lord has clearly established the basic civic principle here that we're not going to take this law that's intended for society, eye for an eye, and turn that into a personal vendetta, which is what the rabbis did. And then secondly, we understand that there's no place for personal revenge when that happens against us. Now he illustrates it four ways practically. So he helps us to understand it, how it's lived out practically. So number three in your outline, testimonial praised practices. Testimonial praise, these are practices that bring a witness to Jesus Christ. So what does it look like when you give up your rights? When you give up your rights. This is what he teaches us. First in your outline, you give up your dignity. Give up your dignity. Now verse 39 says, but Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Because God graciously created us in his image. All right? Every human being has a right. Every human being. I have to remind myself of this. Has the right to be treated with basic dignity, consideration, and respect. But Christ knows when we belong to him, we'll be mislead, uh, mistreated will be ridiculed and even promised persecuted. Correct? Correct? That's what he says. But what Christ has in focus here is how we react when our basic respect is ignored. Now, among the Jews, you need to understand that a slap on the face, striking the face, was the most demeaning action ever. There's a lot of things you could do, but this is the bad one. It meant to embarrass, to shame, to insult, to demean as the ultimate put down. Now, I have an illustration that kind of doesn't quite fit, but it does have at least to help you understand what he's talking about here. So this is a slap of demean, right? Putting you down. I had a grandfather. He was from Belgium, born there. And um, he would come and he would pinch our cheeks. Anybody had a, a pinch cheeker, a cheek pincer in your family? Okay, they just, you're like, let it go. And then he would also slap, sometimes once, sometimes three times, just whack you. And that was part of the love and affection of a Belgian grandpa, okay? We called him Papa. He was my dad's, you know, it was the father-in-law. And they didn't always get along. Uh, he was unsaved and had weird expectations uh, of my mom, etc. It was really interesting, dynamic. That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But he came to visit. He came to visit us. And instead of hitting the kids first, which was normally, you know, pinch, pinch, slap, 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 and sometimes a good whack, okay, he saw my dad first. Now, I got to explain my dad, no, no fat on him at all, about 220 pounds, uh, state champion wrestler, uh, state champion football player, a, a, a man of steel. I mean, the guy had gristle. We were more afraid of my dad than any person on the planet. The man, had, could, you could hit him and it hurt your hand. Trucks would run into him. They did dented. It was just, he was unstoppable. So, and my grandpa comes in and my dad greets him at the door. And my grandpa, I mean, I don't know what was going on, but cracked off the biggest slap that I have ever heard in my entire life. All three kids, Mark, Wendy, and Chris, just stopped talking. And we were chattering. We stopped talking because we knew at that moment that Papa was dead, okay? <laughs> Papa was going to die, and we watched my dad's face get redder, 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 but somehow he resisted. He didn't turn the other cheek, <laughs> but there was a sense of that's what was going on here. It's, he was slapped, and it was supposed to be a slap of love, and it felt like a slap of disdain, but what's happening here is the slap of disdain. This is the ultimate insult and when the ultimate insult happens, 
What's he say in verse 39? Look at it, very end. Turn to him what? The other cheek also. Turn the other cheek. Now, this symbolizes the non-avenging, non-retaliatory, humble, gentle spirit that characterizes citizens under Christ's rule. This is his rule for his kingdom, and we live under that rule now. And again, I want to make sure this is really clear. This verse is not calling us to refrain from protecting ourselves or protecting our family from harm. Let me say it again. This verse is not, not claiming that you can't protect yourself or protect your family from harm. This is not an excuse at all for violent crime to be excused. That's not what he's saying. This is a guiding principle for an individual Christian to love instead of respond in anger. It's a guiding principle for individual Christians to show forgiveness instead of revenge. Because why? You're trying to put Christ on display. You're trying to make them think, why didn't they respond like everybody else? That's what makes you different. That's what points to Christ. I mean, think about our Lord Jesus Christ. What did he do? He walks to the temple and he sees that his father's house is being absolutely disdained and distorted by money changers and sellers and they've turned the the temple into a carnival and he makes a whip, the Bible tells us, and that doesn't happen in a moment. You don't make a whip in 10 minutes. It takes you time. He's sitting there with intentionality, Jesus making a whip, and then he goes in and drives them out of the temple, right? Because his father's house is being insulted. He is angry. He is. Except when you see that he's insulted, he's slapped, He's abused. He's persecuted personally. Well, how does he respond? With no response. No response. He doesn't attack back. He doesn't take revenge. He doesn't retaliate in word or in action when he himself is attacked. That's the point here. John MacArthur says it this way. When someone attacks our right to dignity, we too are not to defend that right by retaliation. We individually are to leave the protection and defense of our dignity in God's hands, knowing that one day we will reign with him in his kingdom. And that's how we are a witness and, and, and a testimony to Jesus Christ. When we turn the other cheek, they're going, what is going on with these people? It causes them to say, what's different about you? He leads us to a second one. Give up your security. Give up your security. And verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Now here he's talking about a man who brings a lawsuit against you. He doesn't say it's deserved or undeserved, probably deserved. And the shirt is what he wants. And he wants to take your shirt. Now this is what happened in a court of law. You had an inner shirt and you had a coat as a Jewish man. The inner shirt was what was closest to your body, and it was a linen or really a light wool. It was nice. It was clean. And the court might take that in a lawsuit if you were poor. They might say, you have to give that up. They wouldn't take your, your coat because your coat was your blanket. Your coat was when you slept outside, that's how you stayed warm. Your coat was how you covered your nakedness. It was, it was like even though this was the inner shirt, you had to have your coat so the carts never went after your coat. They would always leave a man with his coat, but they would negotiate, take your shirt. Are you with me? So when Jesus is talking to these folks, they understand this, how this system works in the legal system. And he basically is saying to them, listen, if he wants your shirt, go beyond that and give them your coat, which is extreme, and they must have been like shocked, but the point is, should a legal judgment be made against us for a certain amount, we should be willing to even give more in order to show our regret for any wrong we did, and to prove we're not resentful toward the one who sued us, and in doing so, are you ready? We show the love of Christ. When you give unnecessarily, you know, you had to give your shirt But you didn't have to give your coat, but you give your coat, they're going, why would you do that? You don't have to do that. Why would you do that? And the answer is what? Because of Christ. Because he gave me everything. Be willing to forfeit what is your due 
Rather than demand justice or become vengeful, respond to your adversary with love and grace. Do what the law requires and then go further. And then when you do this, God himself becomes your defender and your provider. And you amaze the watching world and you point to Jesus Christ himself. And therefore prove you're not resentful. Prove that you're showing no, you know, regret for any wrong you did. And it puts God on display. Are you tracking with me? This is what he has in mind. Is how to show off Christ. How to get the world to notice that you are remarkably different. And again, individually, this is what you're supposed to do. Thirdly, give up your liberty. Give up your liberty. Verse 41, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him what? Two. Now this is the sacrifice of liberty, and God's plan is for people who are made in his image to live in freedom. Human slavery, by the way, was never God's plan. It was never, ever, it was all a part of the fall into sin. It was never a part of God's original plan and creation. And even the best of governments try to protect the freedom of their citizens. It's a right, but like all other rights, even this freedom, liberty, is not to be sought at the expense of God's righteousness or even our faithful witness to the world. Okay? So, you're saying, what's going on here? Well, Roman law had the, given the soldiers a right to force a civilian to carry his pack or supplies for a Roman mile. So Jesus, my buddy here, he's a civilian. He, he works in a, you know, he's a, a carpenter. I mean, he just does nothing. And I'm a centurion, you know, I got a hundred men under my rule. And I'm tired. I'm tired of carrying my pack because I got a lot of supplies. I'm a centurion. I got a few extras, okay. So I just grab Jesus off the street and I go, you're carrying my pack. Now, this was hard for Jesus, because Jesus is a loyal Jew, and not only do we hate the Romans when we face them in battle, because they typically win, we hate them also personally, because they're making us, who they're, they're our oppressors, they're the people who now rule us, and we should be ruled by God, and we should be ruled by God himself through you know, our religious system, we shouldn't have these Romans over us, and now our oppressors are making us carry a burden for a mile. Tracking with me? That's what's going on. So I'm making them carry this for a mile, which is basically called a million. It's just short of our actually mile that we measure today. And million not meaning million that we have, but just that's what it's called. And interesting enough, Jesus says, okay, when that happens, don't go one mile, go what? Two. You say, why? Why would you do that? Because at that point, you're saying, I serving you because I've been served. I'm serving you because I've been served by the, the king, the God of the universe. I've been, I've been given so much. Let me tell you about Christ who came to serve, to die for sin, rise from the dead, and make us alive and make us free in a freedom that I can never lose. No matter what your situation is, in doing so, you become obedient to your Lord. You testify to his righteousness, knowing that in Christ, you have a sweeter, more precious freedom that can never be taken away to you. What does Jesus say? John eight thirty six. if the Son makes you free, you will be what? Free indeed. Right? So all of a sudden, he's going, whoa, why would you go another mile with me? That's your open door to talk about Christ that makes you different. Number four, fourthly, give up your poverty. Give up your poverty. Give to him, verse 42, who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. The fourth right you're to surrender is property. Now, fallen human nature is possessive, and we all dislike it giving up that which belongs to us. And even as Christians, we forget that nothing truly belongs to us and that we are only stewards of what belongs to Christ. Amen? When we gave our lives to him, he got the whole package. But as far as people are concerned, we do have the right to keep that which we possess. By right, it's yours to use or dispose of as you see fit. But the right must also be subservient to obedience to Christ. If necessary, Jesus says, verse 42, when someone asks to borrow something from you, you should not turn away from him, but give him what he wants. Now, some of you are really alarmed by this because you're thinking, boy, there's a lot of shysters in our society uh, this is not going to be good. Listen, what's implied here is this. The person who asks you has a genuine need. 
This would not be expressed here. This is not a manipulator. This is not a fool. This is not somebody who's selfishly taken advantage of you. This is not one of those pros who knows how to manipulate a church and Christians to get what they want. Listen, when you give to the manipulator and you, you, know, you let them borrow from you, you're harming them. The Jew in the first century would rather die than to beg or to ask you for something. They'd rather die than do that. So this person who's asking you for help has a legitimate need. They've lost all hope. When they come to you, you know they've got a need. They've got to feed their kids. There's something really dramatic going on here. This is not a fake, all right? This is not like today in our society. So they ask you, and Jesus says, don't lecture them, don't shame them, don't make them work through their budget. Listen, feed them. Feed them. Meet their immediate need. Spurgeon nails it again. He always does. Quote, he says, be generous a miser is no follower of Christ. <laughs> Don't you love that end quote? And the heart of a believer would want to give to what's needed once we know what the need is. Not begrudgingly, or, but willingly, generously, lovingly meet that need. Desire to help others. Not to make you feel good. Not to make you feel less guilty. But for the person's need to be met. That's why we do it. This is how we point to Christ. This is Christ's Radical statements to expose our heart, to see what we're really like inside, to see how we live under his rule in his kingdom. Uh, we're not distorting civil justice. We're not taking the laws that belong to society and bringing them to us to go, you know, eye for an eye. That's what the Jews were doing. That's what the scribes had promoted to them. That's what the oral law promoted. But that's not what Jesus intended from the word of God. Not at all. The Lord is destroying, are you ready? Write it down, selfishness. He's destroying it. Self-centeredness that appears as a demand for justice and a fight for your rights. But the Lord says, giving up your rights points to Christ alone as, understand, a follower of Christ alone, demonstrating that Christ alone is right. So take this home. Are you ready? Take it home. Letter A, die daily. Die daily. Every day, somehow, some way. Listen, make it a goal this week. Every day. Give up a right for Christ, die daily. Do what Paul did, die every day. It's not Lent, it's not Catholic, this is Bible. Die daily, right? So instead of being served, serve. <clears throat> instead of getting, give. Instead of attacking back, compliment. Instead of feeling put down, speak words that build up. Stop thinking about what you deserve and constantly think about what you've received from Christ that you never deserve. Instead of living for this world under the rule of Satan, live for the next world under the rule of Christ. Deny yourself, point to Christ, die daily. Say it one more time with me. Ready? Die daily. Letter B. I got to say this really quickly. Never allow yourself to become a punching bag. The reason I say that is because these passages have been so misused that there are some people who say, well, physical abuse by a spouse, by a parent, by a person, by a teacher, by somebody is, is, is legitimate. It is not. This passage has nothing to do with that, does not support abuse at all. Physical abuse in no way. Don't even go there. This passage is not about family. It's not about even non-Christian family. This passage is about your witness in the world. The slap, the lawsuit coat, the extra mile... The borrowing and giving away of possessions is primarily a witness of Christ's love, His mercy, His grace, and His giving, and His cross. It's about what He's done. The passage in no way justifies or defends the sick, demented hypocrite who physically abuses. Can I hear an amen to that? There is no place for that in Christianity. If that's happening in your life, call the police. If that doesn't work, tell us. We'll call the police. Stop being afraid. Stop it this day. That is not what this passage teaches. Letter C. Only Christ can help you respond His way to injustice. If you're thinking, man, Chris, there's no way I can do that. You know what I'd say? You're absolutely right. You can't do it. But when you're born again... When Christ lives in you, when you're filled with the Spirit, when you're walking according to the Word, then He can live through you to give up your rights and point to Christ. He can do it. The Pharisees were wrong. They were not righteous by making enemies pay for their offenses, even if it was eye for an eye. You are pleasing Christ by giving up your rights. And who is it that gave up more rights than any being that has ever existed? Answer? Christ. He gave up heavenly glory and became a man the God-man lived a perfect life for 33 plus years, 
willingly gave himself up on the cross to be punished of, by God the Father for all the sins you've ever committed for all eternity. He suffered your eternity in hell upon himself on the cross. Because he was perfect, rose from the dead, all right, after he died, and ascended into heaven, and now when we exchange all that we are for all that he is, when we put our faith in him and his person and his work on the cross, he can cover us with his righteousness called justification. He also regenerates us, giving us a new heart that actually wants to give up our rights. We want to do that. Even when we fail to, we want to. But only Christ can accomplish that. Can I hear an amen to that? You can't be doing that unless you're saved and unless you're spirit-filled. Can't do it. There's just no way. It's not in our nature at all. Letter D, allow Christ's example to melt your heart. Christ showed us how he responded to a violent, dishonorable insult personally. So read aloud with me slowly 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Let's read it together. Ready? Here we go. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed." There is no one like our friend, our master, our king, our God, our savior, like Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And yet, when you're filled with the Spirit, you can actually see him live through you as we obey his word dependently. It's our greatest challenge, and it's also our greatest joy. And letter E, aggressively give up your rights. Die daily deny yourself, surrender your various holds on this world and begin to live like William Borden with no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. Giving up your rights points to Christ alone as truly being the only right one, the only righteous one, the only one that we want to put on display. Amen? Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for your love for us. We pray, Father, that you might draw some to yourself and the rest of us, that we might really think through what it means to give up our rights, to live humbly, to die daily. We'll trust you and thank you that you'll work in us, that we would really worship you, that we would really respond in obedience, and Father, that you would be exalted by how we react to this passage. We pray you might understand it, and live it in a dramatic way for your glory. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.